we interrupt this important broadcast for some urgent news. The Camerosity podcast crew have arrived in Europe. El mundo espera con la respiración contenida a que comience el espectáculo de Camerosity. La Camerosity est attendue avec impatience par les millions de fans chaque quinzaine et cet épisode n'est pas différent. Des files d'attente se sont formées autour du blog. Womit wird uns die Camerosity crew diese Woche begeistern? Wird es Nikon, Canon, Leica oder sogar Hasselplatzer? L'arrivo di Camerosity Podcast in Europa ha creato un interesse senza precedenti per l'acquisto di fotocamere. The excitement is palpable. Without further delay, let's cross to the studio with our hosts, Mike, Paul, and Theo. Welcome to episode 16 in the first ever European edition of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. This week we are recording at a special time that's more European time zone friendly, so that our friends in that area of the world can join us. As always, there are no scripts, no agenda, and we do not know who will be here or what we will discuss until after we start. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and as always, from the Midwest United States, Mr. Paul Reibold. Was Santa good to you this year, Paul? Oh, he was, he was, I didn't get the pony, but other than that, <laughs> no other pony. Than that everything was fine. Thank you. Also, where it, where it is very early in the morning, all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Have you had any coffee yet, Theo? Uh, I've actually injected it straight in my veins, mate. I, it's 6 a.m. here. I need the coffee straight into the bloodstream. Yeah, Theo's the guy that had to make the biggest concessions for the time zone uh, change here for us to do this. So thank you for joining, Theo. Uh, we have a large number of people here in the waiting room that we're going to let in. It looks like this should be a lively discussion. Geez, we have a full house today. Yeah. All right, we'll just kind of go in order. Um, we have Peggy Marsh. Hey, Peggy, how you doing? Uh, good, thank you. How are you? Oh, excellent. It's super great to I actually see you. I noticed my accent's actually just changed just as I spoke to you. Usually it's very broad, Yorkshire. Uh, but when I talk to people with a, a foreign accent, my teacher voice comes out. And it did without even thinking. Without even thinking. So, so one of us is going to end uh, this show with a with a really horrible UK accent, and some of you guys <laughs> might start saying things American style. You know, we'll have to see uh, which one is more long lasting than others. But it's super cool to to see you, Peggy. You know, I've I've been uh, chatting with you for a couple of years now. You're a fellow blogger like I am. Uh, I know that you uh, have a, a large selection of cameras that you like to walk around and shoot. Um, you know, so we'll hopefully get a chance to talk to you a little bit more a little bit later. Uh, I see. I see. Skip Williams. Welcome, Skip. Hi, Mike. How are you? How you doing? You don't sound too British. I do not sound British at all. <laughs> uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I've been on once before, uh, maybe six weeks, maybe a couple months ago. So I live in New Jersey. Um, have been. I bought my first camera in '73. Uh, I've been a diehard Olympus fan for many, 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 many years, more than I care to remember. Excellent. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, other things along the way, including Leica, because it because it turns the same way. The lenses turn the same way. So that made it easy. But lots and lots of uh, Olympus all the way up from, you know, the 60s all the way through today. That, that's all. I, that's pretty much all I shoot today, except for film and things like that. Yeah, we gave away an Olympus in the last episode, so uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk more about that today. Sure. Um, William, I don't have a last name. William's iPad. Welcome to the show, William. Hey, it's Bill Smith in the Classic Camera Revival. Oh, truck. I didn't recognize you. Okay. Yeah, ah, it's my full. It's the name that shows up on my driver's license and passport. William's yeah. iPad. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's the, the man behind the famous voice. Yeah. yeah there you go. It, it's snowing here uh, at my end of the Great Lakes, and it's like maybe 32 degrees Fahrenheit for the Americans in the studio audience. 
And uh, we had Malcolm Myers on the show a couple weeks ago uh, in a non-European friendly episode where he had some insomnia in the middle of the night and woke up and thought, gee, I should jump on the podcast. So welcome back, Malcolm. Uh, it's more a time zone friendly for you. Yes, it is. So thank you. But this time it might be getting the kids to bed later on. But don't worry, I'll, I'll, I've asked my wife to take over that one. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to stay on uh, for the whole for the whole show. Excellent. All right, Alan, Alan Duncan. How you doing, Alan? Not too bad, Mike. How are you doing? Excellent. Alan's another fellow blogger. Uh, you run your own website. You want to real quick promote yourself there? Yeah, <laughs> I've been running Canon cameras for a few years now. Tend to look at the lower end stuff that no one else bothers with, though there's a few higher end things chucked in as well. So hoping we can maybe talk about what everybody's worst and best cameras of 2021 were. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like your slogan that you review cameras so that we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm real sorry, Peggy. You want to tell us which what your website is, real quick? I almost forgot then. Um, camera go camera, camera go camera, and um, not the other way around. You don't want to get it the wrong way around. <laughs> what happens when you type it in the other way around? Um, I tried it once just for fun, uh, and the soft porn site came up. <laughs> I don't know whose site started first, but I definitely didn't know that when I chose the name. Yeah, it's pretty funny. You flip her, her <laughs> website's name around and you get porn. It's it's artistic porn, so yeah, it's a little bit tasteful at least. Maybe no, keep the kids porn. away. It's not like too distasteful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I away. looked a lot, but I wanted to say what people would get if they went there. <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> I see George G. George, welcome to the show. You want to say hi? Hi, uh, I'm George. I'm from London. Um, I do another podcast called Flanier on the Streets. Um, I'm part of the film union group that Mike Gutman has. Um, yeah, that's me. All right, welcome. All Thank right, you. I see. I see Miles lie back again. Miles is a as a regular, so uh, we'll skip him for now. But the last person I see is David G. David, welcome to the show. That's me, Dave Goldberg. Hey, Dave, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? Uh, do you want to do a quick intro for yourself? Uh, I'm a photographer for over 40 years. Worked in the retail industry. In Manhattan, New York City, in the camera barn and Hirsch photo chain. Oh, excellent. All right, David. All right. Uh, and then finally, we just had one more person jump in. Dominic. Dominic Samuel. S-A-M-O-L. Did I say that right? Hello. <laughs> All right. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, you want to do a quick intro? Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, yeah. Not much to say about me. I'm a learned engineer. I started photography about 2011. I'm from Germany and... Photography enthusiast since 2011, so to say. I started That's digital cool. and then I shifted slowly two years later into analog. And now I have, I think, over 100 cameras and stuff ongoing like that. Excellent. All right. Well, we have 12 people on. This, I think, is a record for the most number of people we've had at once. And I'm running from a laptop screen, which is smaller than my monitor at home. So I'm going to have to scroll through to see everybody. But hopefully you guys... Um, all had a good holiday. If, if I don't know everybody, I don't want to assume everybody celebrates Christmas, but if you do, Merry Christmas. Um, did, did anybody get anything cool that they want to share, or let's just let's kind of jump in and see if anybody's had any new acquisitions, uh, both both high end, low end, cheap. There's only, there's one brand which we will not discuss this episode, um, but uh, <laughs> any other brands are. No, I'm just kidding. You can talk about whatever you want. I have been shooting a Canon Pelex on loan. Pelex? Yeah, one of... Is that the 1.2 lens on there? It's the 1.4. 1.4. 
Definitely not a camera for an overcast, snowy day. Why do you say that? For anybody who's never used the Pelix before, it was the first um, SLR with a mirror that doesn't move. It was It's semi-transparent where part of the light uh, reflects up into the pentaprism, and then another portion of it just passes straight through the mirror to the um, film plane. So when you fire the shutter, you never get any viewfinder blackout because the mirror doesn't ha- have to move, which is kind of cool. Uh, but you know, since only a portion of the light entering through the lens is going to the viewfinder, it can be quite dark. Is that a good summary? Yep. I was. It was basically one sixtieth f four all the way yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a blog post for it in a week or two. Yeah. Now, I there there were other cameras that used the pellicle concept. Uh, a lot of companies would put like a exposure meter behind the mirror to let a like you know ten percent of the light hit the exposure meter, but the rest of it would still flip up. Or it, it would still move, but the Pelix's mirror just doesn't move at all. It's fixed, uh, which is neat. But surprisingly, it's just as loud to fire as any other SLR. Yeah, the Olympus, the Olympus Pin FT has a semi-silvered mirror. Oh, it's well. the same way. Uh, it moves, but it, it uh, reads, move. reads through the mirror for um, for metering. Yeah, I think they did the same thing with the Canon EOS RT, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To- yeah, the one so they got a better frame. So they got a better frame rate, right, Malcolm? Yeah, but I, I don't think it was a great seller though. I think they they trumpeted it, and it it was. Um, I think it ended up on uh, the retailers' shelves, so uh, it didn't sell very well. What what was the rationale for the Pelix? Quieter, in theory. In theory, but it really isn't. I mean, you fire a Pelix right next to a Canon FT, and and you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference in terms of volume. I mean, maybe there's a subtle difference because the mirror's not moving, but I. Seems the shutter makes the majority of the noise, not necessarily the mirror. So where does the Pel- where does the Pelix fit into the timeline of Canon's SLRs? Is it one of the really Six, early ones? Sixty five, I think. Yeah, it was with the FT, FTQL, TLQL, and the Pelix because they all use FL lenses. So that'd be about right. It's pre F one. So I, I I think if I had to guess, I mean. I'm going to go with a proof of concept. You know, they had to learn how to make the, the pellicle mirror, which, you know, the, the technology was used in other cameras too. But it's, it's, a, it's one of the classic full-bodied Canon SLRs. You know, big, heavy uh, supports, you know, their earlier lenses. I mean, it can handle the older ones yeah, too. Yeah, you could see where Canon was going with the, later on with the FTB. I just think the, pellic, the pellicle mirror was kind of a dead end for Canon. And I said, okay, this is a fun experiment. We're done. We're just going to, because if you've got a slower lens, like say a 35 2.8 or the 100 2.8, it's going to be a lot dimmer on that camera, unless you're in Death Valley. Canon was trying a lot of stuff back then with the, uh, use the EX, uh, which is about the same time period. How much light do you lose, um, uh, Bill or Paul? How much light do you lose on the pellets? Oh, uh, man, a stop and a half at least. Yeah, at least a stop and a half. It's dark. It's dark. The meter compensates for the mirror, but even then, it's like, it's definitely a summer camera. <laughs> yeah. Well, they released, I think it was their first ever F1.2 lens for that camera because they were they were trying to optimize the amount of light. They're like looking through a, um, a Barracks 2A or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if if yours is the same way, Bill, but um, every Pelix I have ever handled seems to suffer from mirror desilvering worse than other cameras. I mean, any, any old camera can have the, the mm. pentaprism 
I said mirror. I'm sorry. I meant to say penoprism. The penoprism on those seem to suffer from degradation of some type worse than others. So I don't know if in a way to compensate for the pellicle mirror, maybe they did something different with those prisms because everyone I've ever looked through is just gummed well, up Well, the really one bad. I have, the mirror, again, it's, like, it's a loner camera and I'm handing it off to Alex Lux for a review this Wednesday. Uh, the mirror, the pentaprism's in great shape. Like, yeah, like I've had desilvering, uh, a minuscule bit of desilvering with an FTB pentaprism and uh, with an I, a Nikon FI level that was my dad. That was my dad's, which I'd love to have somehow have fixed someday. But yeah, it, that it, the, the pentaprism's in decent shape, which is pretty good for, That's cool. for a camera that vintage. Paul, you mentioned the Canon EX. What was special about that one? Remember, the EX didn't have interchangeable lenses. It used interchangeable front oh. elements. And I think they only made, really? they made a fit. The camera, of course, came with a 50. And then I believe there was a 35 and a 100. Oh. Right. Yep. Uh, I, I have the 100. <laughs> yeah. I, I got rid of the camera, fortunately. It was a, it was a really an odd camera. It had a, a, a viewfinder blind over the around the rewind crank. And you turned it to, uh, to close everything down. Very strange. Yeah, I think it was um, kind of like the Retina, uh, where you, when you change the front element, the rear element stays in the camera. Yes. You're actually only changing part of the lens formula with each lens. So obviously they're very, they're very proprietary. I think they might have. I, you know, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember if it was a leaf shutter. It might have been a leaf shutter. You know, uh, I have one, but I don't honestly remember. I don't remember either. It's been six months. <laughs> but it was about the same time frame as the Pelican. Yeah, I agree. I think, it, and this is just me guessing, but, I, you know, with the Canon release, the Canon Flex in 59 to compete with that other camera, uh, and it didn't do well. So I think they decided to pivot and say, well, what kind of creative things can we try? And, you know, the Pelix came out of that era. The EX came out of that era. Uh, you know, they eventually embraced the electronic SLRs with the A-series and the 70s faster than some other companies did, too. So I think they felt like, well, if we can't win in the pro market, we're going to we're going to try and compete in the the technology or, you know, the high feature premium kind of kind of market. And started messing with hybrid shutters in the early 70s with the EF. And I. Yeah. thought that was the yeah. test bed that was the foreshadowing for the AE-1 because it was a shutter priority camera like the AE-1. Uh, thankfully, it was mostly a mechanical shutter. Yeah, everything half second and faster was mechanical. One second and longer was electronic. Uh, so you can fire the shutter. And the reason I know that is the Canon EF is probably my all-time favorite Canon SLR. I just really, really mm. like that camera. Yeah, it's um, the only one I like at all. I mean, I... I the the fact that the, they they did the first one that I remember though somebody said the M5 had it also where you could change the shutter speed dial with your index finger of your Correct. right hand yeah I thought the, it was just the M6s like, had that one of the M6s either the TTL or the non I'm sorry which one one of the M6s uh, had the same thing where you could just kind of rotate it really easily with your uh, finger well the M5 did yeah, the M5 hung out the M5 that hung out over the front of the uh, front and that was all that was also very cool. Which one was it? Which one of the M6s had the big dial, the big shutter speed dial, rather than the small one? Well, I think the M6 and the M6 TTL were both the same. And one of them's small, and one of them's big. I think I oh, the TTL version is a little bit bigger, but it yes, does one of them turns the, one of them turns the wrong way. Remember? 
mean, I have an M6, but I, but I don't remember the, the TTO. Yeah, one, one of them, one version of the M6, the um, shutter dial turns the opposite way that you, you think it would. And that was it. That was a poor decision. <laughs> it was. It was. That, that, that version is not so well liked. Yeah. But what Paul's talking about uh, with the M5 and the Canon EF, um, there was an SLR made by a major Japanese company in the 80s that had it too, uh, is, you know, if you picture you're holding an SLR to your eye, you're looking through the viewfinder, you kind of have your right hand, uh, your index finger is usually resting on the top plate where the shutter release is. The shutter speed dial, you know, obviously is a dial usually on the top plate, but with these cameras, you could kind of rest your finger along the front leading edge of the camera. And you could spin the the um, the shutter speed dial with your finger left and right without ever having to lower the camera from your eye. Which, considering these are shutter priority cameras, it works really well because you're looking through the viewfinder at the meter. And if you need to make adjustments on the shutter speed, you, you know, just the left right motion of your right index finger allows you to easily turn. The dial. Now, that's not to say that it's not difficult to change other cameras' shutter speed dials, but it just—it's kind of one of those nice, like, ergonomic touches that probably doesn't sound too cool until you actually hold one. It's it just really well thought out. But it's something that's been taken through into the digital world because if you look at the, the DSLRs, like the professional um, uh, Canons, and you know, the can I say Nikon or does it get bleeped out? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. Um, but if you um, but if you look at they, they on the grip, they'll have the the actual uh, rotating buttons on the back and the front, specifically so you can control your aperture and your shutter speed, all by just um, rotating those dials. Yeah, yeah. My, I, the Olympus uh, EM1 that I use has two sets of dials: one on the front, and one on the back. Anyway, uh, I use a Sony A7 series, and uh, I have it programmed for the front wheel under my index finger to be the shutter speed dial. Yeah, the, the, uh, the em ones the same way. You can change whatever you want. You can move the dials around however you like. Has anybody ever handled uh, a Fuji SLR called the Fujica Rex? No. I had a review of it, or I do have a review of it on my site, and they have uh, Fuji, Fotlander had back wheel focus, where there's a wheel on the back of the camera that you could use your right thumb to change the focus of the lens. Well, the Fujica Rex, you, there's two dials. There's one for focus and one for aperture. So with the camera to your eye, your right thumb can control both the focus and the aperture, the, the diaphragm, you know, that way too. And I think that's, I could be wrong, but I think that that's the only camera I could think of where the aperture is controlled in that manner instead of around the shutter or the, you know, Kodak retinas had that wheel under the shutter, which is, horrible i was going to ask the question then obviously there's a lot of these sort of design dead ends should we call them that people have tried and not gone anywhere have there been any i mean i i guess the front wheel on the canon worked uh with the t90 onwards but are there any of these things that actually went into mainstream production that actually were successful and people just take them for granted now uh once again i'll go back to the wacky olympus that has the shutter speed dial around the lens. And except for the Nikon um, Nikomat, it's the only camera that ever did that. And, um, you know, I've used it for so long, it's second nature, but most people find it really, really very unusual. And Yeah, I've used the OM1 recently, and I must admit that's the one thing that I just couldn't, I couldn't sort of get used to. And uh, I love the camera. Apart from that, I love the camera. It's a fantastic little camera, but just that, sh- I, the, the hand just went to the wrong place or every single time. Yeah. 
if you get used to it, man, I've been used it for 40 years. I mean, if you used it for that long. Uh, yeah. yeah. It comes, it comes. I'm the same. I'm just started using an OM40 today. Uh, and I haven't used an OM for a while. Uh, and it took me a while to, you know, go back to where the shutter speeds are. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit awkward. But uh, when I first started taking photos, it was on an OM10 um, with the manual. And then I kept getting OMs. Uh, and it just came natural in the end. You get used to anything mm. that's put in front of you, I guess. The, the nice thing about it is the um, the dials on the, the aperture ring and the shutter speed dial, they act the same. So you turn them the same the, the same way and they either make it brighter or dimmer. So you have yeah. two rings to work with that you can work um, against one another. So it becomes very, very easy to, to, if you need to open it up, you just turn whichever one you want. And I think, you know, for me specifically, like when, when you're talking about auto exposure, I'm more of an aperture priority guy than shutter priority. Uh, and, you know, so you got the OM1, which is, you know, not auto exposure. But, you know, my, my mindset is usually I set a shutter speed to just cover whatever range of light I'm going to be in and I don't mess with it. You know, and, and then I control, I fine tune my exposure with the aperture dial. And one thing that's, that's really beautiful about the OM series is the, all the lenses, the aperture ring is the, towards the very mm. front of the lens. So if yeah. you're out shooting fast, assuming you don't have huge changes in, in light, you know, you're just talking about walking around outside, shade, no shade, whatever, you could fine tune your exposure with the aperture dial and you don't even need to mess with the shutter speed dial. A lot of the zooms, the um, aperture ring is further mm. toward the back. Um, but most of the other ones, it's out, especially all the primes, it's all out on the lens barrel. The, the front, yeah, it's right by the filter ring. Which yeah, is, I mean, the, 300 is, is, the 300 is in the middle of the lens. Is it? Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm uh, used to the, the primes, but that make, that's good to know too. Um, but yeah, Maitani designed that camera, uh, and he was a huge fan of Leica. And he was unhappy with the design of a lot of the SLRs up till that point. So he said, uh, no, Olympus did have an SLR prior to the OM-1. Um, yeah, but when, when Maitani got involved in, you know, Maitani was the guy who designed the pen, uh, he later did the XA, that little compact XA. But when he designed the OM-1, which originally it was called the M-1, he he wanted to take as much inspiration from Leica, from lights as possible by making a lightweight, compact camera where ergonomics were, were put towards the forefront of its design. You know, he, he put a lot of thought into what he, he thought would make for good ergonomics. And it doesn't make it wrong. You know, I, I mean, Theo, a lot of people agree with, you know, that it, it's definitely awkward, especially if you jump around between a bunch of different SLRs, picking mm. up an OM uh, or a knicker mat. I can say that, that word, <laughs> uh, having the <laughs> dial around the shutter def- definitely is weird because it's just, it's, it's, it's not natural for your fingers to reach there to change shutter speeds. But, um, you know, it, once it, once you get used to it, it definitely is, is nice to have. I think we had another person join, um, Mike, uh, Warner's joined on. Yes, we have Warner, Warner's iPhone. Hey, Warner, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? All right. I, I was waiting to hear if he had a German accent and then I would start calling you Werner. <laughs> no, I actually, um, I jumped on cause I sold Theo that, uh, Topcon RE kit he has and I heard him, I heard him on the podcast. So I had to, had to jump in. Oh, you're that Warner. Oh, G'day, mate. That was one of the best purchases I've had in a long, long time. It was a good purchase. Yeah, that, that t- Topcon RE worked straight out of the blocks. Um, it gave me no trouble at all. And uh, I came with, if I remember, three or four lenses, which was mm-hmm. which is superb. I think I supplemented with one more, which was the 135. And then um, it's one of my com- most complete kits. I absolutely love that camera to bits. Good. 
Good. It, it was an RE Super. Yeah. Yes. RE Super. Yep. The fifty A one four thirty five. Now, can you see a sharpness improvement on that fifty eight one four? Because I've heard that that is one of the sharpest that, and uh, I think the the Sumitar, I think the F two. I can't remember, but they say that that top core RE. 58 1.4 is is the sharpest um it is super sharp uh i i i find it superb contrast is a tiny bit low but but that's the the age of the lens i mean that those lenses in that particular yeah in that age were were a little bit um lower in contrast but the the actual sharpness is just superb it it is razor sharp uh it, it is one of my favorite lenses it's got a massive amount of glass at the front so it even looks impressive yeah. <laughs> I regret not ever shooting with it, but uh, you know, I started getting out of adapting lenses around that time, and I should have, I should have tried it out. That lens and the uh, the only lens I've ever seen that was comparable to that in resolution was the fifty millimeter one point four auto Yashinon steel nose. It was actually came out I think on the TL Electro X, it, not the one with the black anodized nose, but actually a steel front really? end. Yeah, it was an unbelievable lens. I think it might have been a Tomioka lens. Actually. Probably. Yeah. But Tomioka it, made it, most of the Ashenons. The quality on it was just excellent. So compared to the 1.7, the 1.9s, and, and, and the 2, I mean, the 2 is well known for its bokeh and its particular look. The, the 1.4 is even sharper than those. Is it, Paul? I think so, yeah. And, and I don't normally, you know, I'm not a high-speed lens fan, even though I do own a bunch of 1.2s. Uh, I don't. I think they suffer when from the design, but those particular lenses, that fifty-eight one four, is just a fantastic lens. It's it's sort of like my holy grail, and I haven't been able to find one. I don't know how I missed Warner. <laughs> <laughs> so Warner, you said you adapt lenses, but do you shoot any film, or do you have a favorite yeah, I used camera to system? Adapt lenses. Uh, I haven't had a I haven't had a digital camera in a little over two three years now. Mm. Um, okay, so it's just I've had. I used to run a shop here. I'm in uh, Boise, Idaho. I used to run a shop called Analog Boise Co. And then uh, I shut that down uh, a few months ago. And now, now I just help out a buddy in Salt Lake. He runs a shop called Acme Camera, which is where Theo bought that RE Super from. Okay. Um, and then I think I've been through 450 or 500 cameras in the last year and a half, wow. two years. It's mm. crazy. So I bounce around a lot. We can call Warner Idaho Paul. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Mike, I got a question for the group. So I, I have never had a Nikon camera in my life. So so my question would be F, F2, or F2? F2. What, what did you say? What, Billion? Bill, F2 what with a white, with a, um, I don't even need a meter. So F2 with a, with a yep, uh, eye level if finder? You can find one. Now, this is sort of like the 1F body if you're not going to go deep into Nikon. The F2, the F2 is good because it's good. It op- the back opens up conventionally, so it's not like you're taking the back, the bottom and the back off. Like I've got five mm-hmm. Nikon Fs, five F2s, two F3s, two F4s. I want an F5. That'll happen someday soon. Uh, but the F2 is, it, it's got the best of both worlds. So you've got like the red, the the old school look of a Nikon F with the eye level prism, but it's a little more. How shall I say? You don't have to fiddle with the bottom, taking the bottom off when you're reloading film, which some people are used to. Others, it's just like, this is a major pain in the ass. <laughs> and where where, where do you get them? 
Well, they're around. I mean, they're they're not hard to find. Um, I, I'll, I I would disagree with Bill. Uh, I I think the F two is a, the stepchild of the F series. I jump from either the F to the F three. I think the F three might be the best SLR camera I've ever used, and, and that's I put it right there with the R four, which I also like. What about so is the uh, does the high eye point finder make a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you wear glasses, a high. I do. Same on. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the one thing that I'm. That, that. Absolutely. When you first asked that question, my first thought was an FE or an FM, but you didn't present those as an option because they're, they're small like the Olympus is. Yeah. I've thought about an FM too. Um, the, the, the thing about the Fs, F2s and F3s is that they're hundred percent accurate mm-hmm. viewing. So mm-hmm. what you see is what you're going to get. Now that isn't important for a lot of people. For me, it was because I shot color transparencies. Yes, yeah, so did I. Yep. So if you shoot negatives, you can crop. If you shoot transparencies, you want your subject to be centered. You want to have it. You don't want to have a lot of slop in the picture that you don't expect to wind up with. Yeah, I so, shot chrome. I shot chromes for thirty years. Yeah. So yeah, that's I, I I agree. It's I mean that's but the F three to me is the uh, reliability is is very good. The F. Uh, was was very primitive it was a great box the f2 the advantage as bill said you know having a hinged back made it a lot easier to change film when you were running uh and it was also uh also very reliable like an, an f3 versus an uh an fm yeah an f3 is a bigger camera and it's going to hold up better the thing to remember about any f2 or ftn or nikon f that has a meter They've they've mostly stopped working. You don't care about the meter, so you just want a prism. An F three, you're going to have a prism, and it is an electronic camera. I mean, it's you're going to have to have a battery in it for it to work, okay. except for ninetieth of a second. But the way that's designed and everything, I think it's uh, ergonomics. The shutter, the film advance lever on it is silky smooth. Uh, the only the only weak spot that I ever found on an F three, and I've probably sold five hundred of them in my in my life. The only weak spot that I ever found was that you could get moisture down inside the shutter release mm. button where the threads are, where a cable release would go in. Nikon made a little button called an AR9, which was a, a little round thing that uh, said Nikon on it. And you screw that in and that kept moisture out. Like a soft release? It's just very reliable. Paul, is it worth mentioning about the uh, the difference in the shutters between the F and the uh, F3? Well, you're going to get faster speeds on an FM2. What's that's one four thousand, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if that's an issue for you, um, the FM two is is a good option. It's got they've gotten so expensive. They have, yeah. I mean they all are they all are though. Well, you know, the thing was they're titanium shutters and they're vertical. So they, they that's how they were they made them lighter. They made the shutter lighter, mm-hmm. which made them able to get the shutter speed up to a four thousandth. But an F two goes to a two thousandth. Uh, and it's a it's a, a horizontal shutter, traveling shutter. I, I could get an F three for you know three or three fifty from KEH or something like that. No, Inter- interesting enough, Skip. The, what I find is the the you know along the lines of what Paul's saying is the the combination of the F three and the FM two is a really nice mm. combination to have. Uh, if you, oh, if don't go there! Those. Don't don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> all. It is, it, but it is. They complement each other very, very well. They do, and the the problem with the FE two and the FM two is they will not use uh, F mount lenses. You can't lock up the no. uh, the pin that is the follower for the aperture. 
You have to get what AI lenses or AI? Yeah, we use only yeah. AI. Yeah. An F3, an F2, uh, an FE, FE, FM. You can use F mount lenses in the stop down mode on those cameras. And that's, that's an advantage because there are a lot of really good old lenses out there. I've never had a problem with an F3 that I've picked up, but I've had multiple shutters on F2s fail. So that's one thing I'd watch out for. They had a, a, a weird shutter issue where the curtain would just break or stop springing back the way it's supposed to. I think sometimes fears that people have when these things were new sometime, somehow last decades, you know, people uh, hated the E-series lenses and said they were garbage when in reality, optically, they were just as good as anything else that company was making. Uh, same thing with the F3. When it first came out and people found out it had an electronic shutter, the, a ton of people lost their minds. Like, I will never buy this camera because it's got an electronic shutter. But, you know, that was 1980 and here we are 2021 and you got a room full of people that will tell you that most, if not all, you know, F3s that you come across generally work fine. So the electronic issue that people were paranoid about 40 years ago proved to be kind of a non-issue, at least not any worse than the the baseline failure rate that any camera can have over that same length of time. It's actually the longevity of the LCD more than anything else that's yeah. actually been yep. the weak that point of the F3. That was my strike against the F3 because I did have an F3 HP that was a birthday present my brother gave me 12 years ago, and the LCD readout was fading then. Now it's like... I. And it's a connection between it and the motherboard, and it's a miserable spot to solder. I had a repair tech that I trust tried. He didn't even charge me, and it was just like it became a parts camera. And that's the only Achilles heel. I love the F3, but if I was recommending to someone who was, yeah, I want that one camera, yeah, F2. Because, <laughs> again, it's that, that was my strike against it. Because like at Nikon, I just sort of like – because especially looking at the FM and FM2 with their meter, it is so perfect. But the F3, yeah, let's go LCD. And the Nikon went balls nuts for LCD. And we all know LCD has a lifespan, especially F4. <laughs> the OM4 has that kind of problem. Besides yeah. some of the circuit problems, they have problems with the LCDs failing in the finder. So you're looking at you know, 30-year-old um, LCD electronics. So That's just, why I love the OM2N over the F- OM4. I mean, money, no issue. The FM3A is the one to go for. Oh, that's hard to find, though. Too expensive. Viewing the the conversation a little bit, Alan, you shoot a lot of cameras that probably shouldn't work at the moment um, after many years. (laughs) Tell us one that really surprised you. Oh, goodness. Um, Where do you want me to start, really? Um, I, I tell you, probably, if I maybe talk about my worst experiences both with Nikon and Canon. Is that maybe a good starting point? That's a great start. (laughs) And I have the, probably my least favorite Canon of all time, the EFM. Some people actually love this. I just can't get my heads around it. If you're, if you're used to Nikon, this is in some ways similar to the uh, F401 series. It has a set of dials (laughs) that you can see on the video screen. Yeah. So that's, that's like an EOS, but with, without auto exposure. Right, or autofocus. Not autofocus. Oh, no, no autofocus. autofocus. No autofocus. Right. Um, you control your your EOS lenses by using a dial on that side, a bit like the uh, Nikon F four ones that the uh, four hundred four four thousand four hundreds to you guys. Um, it's a clunky system, and it kind of works with the EF lenses, but the EF lenses are not great for manual focusing. They they're at a pinch. You can obviously flip them and sometimes you need to do that but 
Uh, and the annoying thing is it's ultra sensitive. You can use adapter rings with it, but almost all the cheap adapter rings don't work. You have to spend a, quite a bit of money to get one that works. And it just you're just left with the feeling, why are you bothering? Because you can shoot on its yeah. sister, which is the US 1000, I think the original Rebel. You can shoot the same, you can use the same lenses manually if you want and have a lot more control. And you can shoot manual lenses just as easily, although it also shares that aperture ring issue. So that, that probably is my least favourite. Any guesses about the Nikon? I actually don't hate, but it's uh, probably a bit grumpy with it's between two, really. EM. I know the EM's fine. The EM is. What was know, the one that was, what's the one that breaks? The FA? FG. Oh, the FG. Yeah. Well, the FG's got reputation. I suppose for me, it's between two. Uh, I have to mention the fan, which I think most of you will have had the unfortunate. Fantastic camera. Probably the most one of the most silent bodies that Nikon have ever. Say it again. Say it again, Alan. The fan, the F seventy. Okay. N seventy. Oh no! I can't love the F seventy. Hang on. The F seventy was the camera that caused unknown number of people to leave the photo industry because they had to use it. What's the problem? Well, it's impossible to. It's impossible to set the the this. There are you have to hold two buttons in and turn a wheel and look to your left. There's a there's work. an LCD screen. I'll see if I can get it up on on light. Uh, I'm sure there's a button to do that. Uh, but it's just awful. There's a sort of weird meshed screen there. I don't know if you can see that. And to move between two modes, exactly as you're right, you have to turn, press down one or two buttons. You have to remember which sequence you are. Once you're in a mode, it's actually really easy to use. So if you shoot. Uh, AP all the time. It's grand to shoot with that, but trying to do anything, fiddle with it, is just an absolute nightmare. Was this back when the cameras had buttonitis, where they started using buttons for everything for a while? Yeah, well, this this is, I mean, Nikon Nikon was struggling at this point. I mean, um, Canon had been producing, I mean, I've got 500, which was around about the same time, and this is a pretty old design by Canon standard, but very familiar if you shoot a modern DSLR or even the later ones. It's got the Pretty standard, straightforward controls. Just Nikon were miles behind at this point, and they, they weirdly decided to do this. And the buttonitis machines are actually easier, a lot easier to use. But that said, it's possibly the quietest Nikon of the era. I haven't handled a Nikon that's as quiet with the the wind. You, you keep an up to blim and check the thing's actually winding on. It's really good. Its focus is pretty much as good as the F ninety. Matrix metering's superb. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic matrix metering. So a fantastic mm. camera just crippled by the interface. And the other one is the, which I don't have anymore because I actually parted with it, was the F601M. I don't know if anyone's mm. had the delight of using 6006, we called it here in the US. Yeah. So the manual, it's the equivalent of the EFM. It's Nikon's strange. Oh, no, that was the N6000 was the manual focus version. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the N6000. And then the autofocus version was the 6000. 6000, yeah, 6006, yeah. I tried the F70 and I think, yeah, Theo was right. It really does take good pictures. Um, I only took one film in it, as I usually do, uh, and that was in snow. And I didn't make any adjustments for the snow and every shot came out perfectly. It was just trying to figure out. It's not one of those you can just pick up and use, I found. But you're right. Once you get it in the good mode, it was perfect. 
once you've got it, I mean, I, I shoot AP yeah. usually, a lot of people do, and it's fine once you're in the mode. If you want to have to fiddle with it, exposure correction, it's a bit of a nightmare because you have to get the blooming manual out, which is massive. Um, but it's an actually okay camera once you're in mode, but it's getting there. Um, I think probably the other one, I'd go right down the other end of the spectrum. We're talking about Olympus earlier. Well, a couple of these... And this will be familiar to you, Mike, because you've been shooting the Canon equivalent. <laughs> oh, the, D, the DL9000. Oh, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> this is the Olympus. I got an email from a guy just the other day who ripped into me about how he doesn't trust my website because I should know that that Canon didn't make that. I mean, the, the the dude ripped into me so bad at first I thought it was a joke, but I read through the whole email and I was like, I think this guy's serious. He really thinks that that I really like that camera because I did an April Fool's post one year reviewing that. That, that thing as if it was a great camera. And in reality, it's just uh, – it literally has lead weights in it. There's three of them. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're wedged along the bottom. This, scarily, Mike, is not the worst Olympia you can buy. There is worse than this. I mean, this worse actually... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, wait a second. There is, and I have I actually got a boxed one. Um, Did you pay extra for the lead weights? Well, no, this I don't think it has much lead weight, and it's probably been conscious this way. You can see, because it's importantly, it's an SLR, look, automatic camera, and it comes with three <laughs> lenses. Oh, it's interchangeable. Just to be clear, it's an just to be clear, it's an SLR look. SLR look, (laughs) and it comes for and you know there is actually a plus. It comes with a flip up flash that actually works. It's still sold with a potato masher. Wow, for for unknown reasons why you would need two flashes. And yeah, right enough. The this is the point where I break the lens. Of course, the lenses detach. You get a a whole chunk. I want one. Oh, I, yeah, so I do, what do, makes do it not an SLR? If the lenses change. The lens, it, it's a viewfinder, Peggy. It's just your uh, standard. Okay. There's, you know, you're, you're there's no mirror. There's no mirror. But the lenses, so and they look initially like the. And you, you know this because your your Canon would have had that awful power zoom feature that you press the button, Mike, and it shoots the other goes to one end and another, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the older Olympus has that, but at least you can adjust the aperture in the older Olympus. This looks the same. It's got that little aperture dial, and and uh, I'm going to have to wiggle it because this thing's absolutely stiff. So I, I think it's, you know, anybody can point out how bad those, you know, ch- cheap Chinese knockoff cameras were because, you know, but I don't think they were ever meant to be like serious cameras except for people who just didn't know any better. But for me, the worst camera I've ever reviewed, um, I reviewed probably five years ago. And I at that time, I declared it the worst camera I'd ever used. And you would think that after all these years, years, I would have come across something worse, and I have not. So my worst camera ever of cameras that were meant to be real is the Konica AI Borg. Um, this thing, I, we'll have a picture of it on the Instagram and Facebook page, but for anybody who has not seen it, yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it looks, people call it kind of like the Darth Vader camera because it, it slightly resembles Darth Vader's mask. It's got a, a hinged, like, protective lens cover that flips down in front of the taking lens to protect it. Uh, it was, yeah, Peggy's got one there. Um, it was a technologically advanced camera. Konica released, I want to say, in 91. Uh, I will give them a tiny bit of credit. At least they were trying something new, but they failed in almost every way possible for that camera. The UI on it, it's got this huge LCD on the top where there's 12 shooting modes. 
but the order in which they put the various modes of the camera are just make no sense at all. Like the stuff that you might actually want to use, like red eye reduction or exposure compensation are buried beneath like a TV video game mode you have to go cycle through before you can get to. It's the F70 on steroids. I haven't actually used it yet. It's in my box to use. And I think you're you saying that, and I think you've written it as well. Uh, it's put me off using it. So I've got a few others that I'll get around to it first. Well, the, the AI Borg is even worse than that one. Uh, but the whole look of it made me want to try it. Yeah. No, that's... That, oh, no, it's not it, is it? The, with the AI Borg, um, yeah. so the viewfinder is incredibly tiny. It's, it's yeah. about as small as like a 50s retina, but it came out in the 90s. So um, if you look through it and you wear prescription glasses, you can't see the whole frame. Yeah. Um, Another problem with it is look at where the shutter release is. It's on the front hand grip about halfway down where nobody's index finger is going to be. Like you have to contort your finger like almost at a 180 degree angle to barely hit it. There is a directional pad on the back that you use to control through the modes that's at the extreme upper right hand corner of the camera. Like, so picture you're holding a camera and you're, like a typical hand grip. You got your front index finger angled down at like a 180 degree angle and your thumb has to extend all the way up into the upper right. It's the, the ergonomics on it are terrible. The viewfinder is terrible. Uh, the one that I shot had just the results from it weren't good. It missed exposure. It missed focus. I mean, just it looks neat on a shelf, but that is absolutely the only good thing I can say about it. If you're, if you're a Star Trek fan, it's, it's, it does it's, look cool. It looks fantastic. It has a great demo mode. That's, yeah, that's why I went for the EX, uh, ECX one rather than the A Borg. Um, um, but it's so very similar looking. I think they look great. Oh, that looks weird. Yeah, you put it on demo mode and it'll flash red lights at you. It it honks. It does all kinds of cool stuff. See, that sounds it, like just my cup of tea. I mean, it makes up it makes up for a lot of the down for the Did you ever sell those, Paul? Of the camera itself. I mean, it's a There are other cameras where you oh, I did. I sold uh, a lot of them. I sold a lot of them and I'm I'm amazed that I haven't seen one come back to me. Um, probably because people threw them away. <laughs> I was saying there's a lot of cameras where there's a strange hold on them. You know, like the contact claw and stuff. Um, so, but with other cameras, you forgive it. Um, is it because of all the different modes on that one that makes it less forgiving? It's it's the it's the clunkiness of the UI. The fact that if any mode you do want to use, you have to go through modes that nobody would use. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I'm not a big guy. I have what I consider to be average person's hands like i'm not a basketball player but the the way you have to hold the grip to access both the shutter release and the directional pad to choose the modes is completely terrible it it is like a person who they molded the body of that camera off of clearly had hands that were not like mine because it is horrible to hold if you compare it to what else was out at the time yeah you know that was the time of the bridge cameras the olympus is the canon futura um and they were all beer can, you know, design. And this one had, what was it? The zoom was a 38 to 105, Mike, do you remember? Something like that. Yeah, it's like a 3X, 3.5X zoom. Yeah, 3X zoom. So they made it into a smaller package compared to what else was on the market at that time. But any of those other bridge cameras, the Canon Futura, the Shinon Genesis, uh, Ricoh, what was it? The Rico Mirai. Every one of those. Rico Mirai. Every yeah. one of those is a better camera than the than the AI board. See, now I really want to try it. <laughs> I, I and they handle much better. 
Mike, is it one of these sort of cameras that people would just shoot it on fully auto and just leave the camera to its own I mean, you could, but or... like I said, the act of even pressing the shutter release is a chore, you know, and, and I don't, and I've held a lot of cameras, you know, and, mm. and they don't always have good ergonomics, but there's always some other redeeming factor that you could say about most cameras you shoot. And this one, there's just nothing good to say about it other than it, it looks cool on a shelf, but just don't go buy it. And in, in seven years of my sight, I reviewed that camera, I think, in 2017, and I, to this day, have not come across a camera I hated more. It's obviously an engineer-designed camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, but I want to say they took out like a Super Bowl ad or something to announce it. You know, they, they spent a huge amount of money. Like the people at Konica really believed this was going to be a great, you know, like a, a great thing. And it just wasn't. And it's I think it sold for like $549, which... In 1991, that's like yeah, over $1,500 today for a piece of garbage. I think probably the, the, the copier division at Konica designed it. Yeah, I was just thinking, you, you're probably right, Paul. <laughs> it obviously had nothing to do with the photo division. You, you, Mike, you were asking for what, what have people found. Uh, here's an unusual one that I've picked up. So Horizon? Nope. Wide Lux? Wide Lux? Oh. No. Oh, 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 no Lux. Oh, uh, there you go. It's no Lux. Yeah, which it's is five millimeter wide lux. Uh, not a wide lux, but it's like a, um, it's a noblex. So yeah. it's an electronically controlled drum instead of a um, spring wound drum like a wide lux or a, a Horizon. Which version uh, is that? Yep. This is the one thirty five U, the the top end one thirty five. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. It's big, you know that we talked about this camera a little bit. I think the last episode or two ago that was designed by John yeah. Noble. Yeah. Um, in the nineties, he, he's, him and his dad were in charge of KW, right. um, in Dresden before, before and up to the war, before mm -hmm. they got imprisoned in the Soviet gulag. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. It's, yeah. you know, it's great. It'll do exposures down to a second. And I mean that it takes wow. about two minutes to run a one second exposure because the drum rotates so slowly. Um, but it's got two shutter speed ranges and it's got a four millimeter rise on the lens. So you can, you know, it's not like the Wide Lux or the Horizon where you have to have the horizon in the middle of the um, uh, picture. Otherwise, you get a curved horizon. You've got a little bit more room. Okay. You probably got about, you know, I forget what it is. It's about that much further. You know, maybe maybe it's four millimeters that you can do. So you can get a little bit more, but it's just really nice. Um, the only disadvantage I find is that it's not as instantaneous uh, as a Horizon or Wide Lux. So you've got a little bit of delay while the drum comes up to speed and before it starts exposing, you get about, you know, quarter of a second or half a second until it comes around. Can you shoot it handheld? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's no different than shooting my, um, oh, and I got a note back, remember I had the Horizon? I got a note back from Oleg today that my Wide Lux is ready to come back from Russia. Awesome. So I'll have that back. But this one is, uh, this is a great camera and no problems, luckily so far, I've Otherwise, I have to send it to um, Precision Camera for a three hundred and fifty dollars CLA. Oh, wow. Starts um, the, the medium format Noblex needs uh, an, an external motor for the slower shutter speeds. Does the smaller version need one too, or no? This one doesn't need. It doesn't need the Panelux. The, 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 there's a um, if you if you look in it, there's a, a big thing that you can buy called a Panelux. That's which was about a seven hundred dollar accessory. It will do auto exposure and it will do auto exposure even to the extent that if you take a picture where it's bright on one side and dim on the other, 
it will vary the drum oh, speed wow. to even out the exposure across the frame. Quite a pretty camera sounding more and more expensive the longer you talk it's about not it. Not that you know, I think I paid eight hundred for it. It's not that bad, um, and it's far. I mean, it's much better than my Horizon, of course, and it's much sharper uh, than a Horizon is. But uh, I, I have the one fifty and the one seventy five. Oh, you have a one seventy five. Yeah, that's uh, the six by seventeen. I'm trying to show you a picture of it, but I can't figure out how to make the screen pop up. Uh, I've seen the one seventy five. It's really, really deep. Where, yeah. where it comes well, the over. 150 is a, a 50 millimeter lens and the 75 is a 75 millimeter lens. Yeah, the, the 150 does uh, six by 12. Isn't that right, Paul? Yes. And yes. the 175 does six by 17 in yes. a swing right. lens camera on right. 120 film. Yes, 120. Yeah, those are serious machines. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dominic, have you shot any of the Noblexes or any panoramic cameras that you, that you think are worth talking about? When I was in South Korea, um, I shot one film through a 150 Noblex. So that's what, when I had one in my hands, but I don't have one in my possession. And that's the medium format one, is it? Yeah. Yes, yes. The 150 is the 12 by 6 or 12 by 5 centimeters. It crops uh, up and down from the frame a little bit more than a normal medium format camera does. So 12 centimeters, so you get six exposures per roll? About, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. This one you get like, I think I get um, 14, 12 or 14, something like that. It does a, it's like 50, uh, it's like 55 or 58 by 24. It's it's very close to an X-band size. Very close to an X-band, yeah, that's what yeah, I would Within say. like a millimeter or two. Yeah. So we've talked about a bunch of Japanese brands. We've talked about cameras we hate. Uh, you know, we're, we're calling this the European episode. Uh, are there any of the European brands, you know, maybe less common than Lights or Zeiss or something? What's that? Oh, I see it. Is that a robot? Yes. Oh, it's a robot oh Anthony's two. not here. Well, robot two. Is it? Which one is that? Uh, it's the robot two. The two. Which one do you have on? If I'm correct. Two A. What's the finder on top? Um, it is the robot TV finder. It uh, can show 30 millimeter up to 150 from aspect ratio. Oh, so it's variable. I, Can you explain have, what that is, Dominic? I've never heard of that one. I have the book. I have that robot. Uh, the, ro- the, the Some guy did yeah, a robot. Yeah, that's the, the robot 2A. Um, the differentiation, wow. uh, the biggest between the 2 and the 2A is that a 2A can use normal film and the 2 needs the extra cassettes. Oh, you have those, those cassettes there where you have to open them up and then it runs and you close them when you, when you um, right? Yes, yes. Uh, every robot has uh, this cassette as take-up cassette or kind of the, the earlier have a different design. From the two, everyone has the same take-up cassette and some need uh, also special cassettes because robots thought uh, the normal cassette will not take the speed uh, the clockwork needs or has too much resistance. Mm-hmm. The regular robot used what they called an R cassette, which is what you have. And the Royal, which was the later versions, took the NR cassette. This um, takes the NR cassette as take res- uh, taking reset too. It will take an NR cassette also? Yeah. Okay. Those Royals, Paul, have gotten so pricey. Uh, even the, both the 24 and the 36. R- uh, Anthony just got my, I just sold Anthony a 36. This is the cassette. Which what are they like, $1,500 now? Oh, no, no, seven ninety nine. Okay. I, I, I have a twenty four that's out being overhauled right now. Who does the overhauls? Radu, Radu Lasaru, at three R. He's the he worked. Radu worked for Carl Heitz in New York. Ah, Carl yeah. Heitz was the American yeah. distributor for Alpha yeah. and, and Robot. That. 
and Tessina and all those things. They, didn't, they, didn't they distribute Gitzo as well? Yes, they did. Yep. And uh, Radu was uh, Carl Heitz's major repairman. And when Carl uh, closed, uh, Radu started 3R camera repair. He's down in Naples, Florida now. Yeah, he's got my contacts one right now, so my fingers are crossed he he can fix it because um a one. my only other option uh to, to repair a contacts one is like an eight year waiting list. What's that yeah. what's that guy's dice repairs guy? The guy that takes that does the um contraxes? Yeah. That, that takes forever. Yeah, he's he his prices are a bit high too, but I mean when you're the only person in the world who can do something. Yeah, he's the guy that wants to take every screw of the camera out and polish it by hand before it yeah. back in. Eight, he, he wants to sonically clean eighteen hundred ninety five dollars or so yeah. for eighteen fifty yeah. for a yeah he quoted me flex. he quoted me sixteen hundred to do the contacts wow we with the robots uh, I noticed because I'm looking at uh, the robots at the moment is yeah. that is the Xena or the Xenon lens the ones to go for because a lot of them have the Schneider lenses and I'm not sure if it's the Xena or the Xenons the, the more favorable one. Well, the, you have to, well, the Xenon is F2, Xenar is 2.8. Yeah, and there are also some Rodagons that are very good, Rodenstocks that are um, very good. If, if you look uh, into the 2 series, there is also a Biotar, mm-hmm. 40 uh, millimeter uh-huh. F2, and uh, very seldom the Heligon. I have the 1.9 is on the, uh, the robot, the Royal 24, that's out being repaired right now. Do, yeah. Dominic, do you use the robot? Yes, um, I have a small collection of them from one to uh, up to the royal. So, oh, cool. What are the what what are the stars any good? Uh, yes, um, if you if you go through the history of robots, so the the consumer robots, so to say, started with the one, which is a little bit quirky to use. Then uh, it went to the two, and uh, the next version was the star version version uh, along with the junior version. The junior version has a simple viewfinder. You cannot look uh, around the edge. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the normal robot finder has the possibility to look straight and 90 degrees into the camera. And from the, the star and the junior, the junior was a simple version. The star had a rewind. So if you have only a robot two, you have to take out the film and cannot send it to a lab or you have to ask them to give the cassettes back. And uh, okay. with the, the, the star, you can rewind the film so you can uh, put it to every lab you want to use. Gotcha. So that is an improvement, so to say. And Paul, does the um, robot royals uh, have standard rewind? Yes, they, yes. Have, they use a standard, uh, the feed cassette is standard. And they have rewind too, yes. It's a regular film can and the robot and the royal 24 and 36. It goes into an NR cassette, but they have because, clockwork as well. Yes, yes, twenty-two shots per uh, per wind. Where do you where do you wind it? It's certainly not on the top. Oh, right? It's on the bottom. On the bottom. It's on the bottom. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a uh, little. Uh, it looks like it looks like what you would use to open the bottom of a camera. A little oh, fold, fold it out and wind yes. it. Yes, yes. Anthony just shot his uh, at least one roll through it, and the results were really really good. I've heard that their their the construction quality is fabulous. Oh, that camera! The, the I got two cameras: a Royal Twenty Four and a Thirty Six. They had sat on the shelf at my friend's house for at least twenty years, and uh, Anthony got it, fired them up, and shot with it, and it was just perfect. So, so they're be- so they're better than the Leningrad. Uh, oh, they you are know, on Leningrad has its charms, but uh, you know my problem yeah, with good the luck Royal, finding one that works. The reason I had to send the Royal Twenty Four out 
the, the lenses were not completely interchangeable between the 24 and the 36. And someone had actually put a lens on incorrectly on the 24 and it wouldn't come off. So Radu is, uh, he's having to disassemble the entire camera or the lens. He isn't sure which way he's going to do it yet in order to get it off. Yes, um, the mount is uh, exactly the same between both versions, but uh, they have uh, two pins mm -hmm. and the, the 36 has uh, one pin more so that you normally cannot mount the, the uh, 24 lenses on it. Only yeah, if what? you force fit it or if you disassemble one pin, you can untake it with it's just one screw to take out and you could use the other lenses. But they decided to do it that way that you don't use a lens with a too smaller image circle. Yeah, and for, for those who aren't familiar with, when we say 24 and 36, the 24 is 24 millimeters square. It's a square image. The 36 is standard 24 by 36. Yes. It's a regular 35 millimeters. What's the Zeiss camera that's square like that? The 10X. 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 Yep. That's it. 10X2 and 10X. Yeah, we had, uh, we talked about that a couple episodes back. The initial 10X was the 10X2, and they used a leaf shutter on it, um, and it's got interchangeable lenses. And uh, I, I don't remember the specifics, but they ended up having to go with the square format on necessity to be able to get the coverage right uh, and have interchangeable lenses because back then it was just a lot harder to be able to to do a leaf shutter with the speeds that they were trying to get. Hubert Nerwin um, made that camera or, or designed it, and uh, they 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 went with the the twenty four by twenty four square out of necessity just because they couldn't find they couldn't they wouldn't have been able to get the coverage right. With, by you know, having a 36 millimeter wide image, but those are really cool. The the photo of it, has anybody shot one of those? That's another yes. square camera too. Th those are really, really tiny and they use, um, they call it Bolta film, oh, but I think that's just be because that's just, it was that camera, uh, but you know, 35 millimeter, you know, regular film, but you have to put it in special um, spools. And when you bought a photo of it, I, th I think it came with it, or maybe it was an accessory they sold you, but they would give you this little box that you would stick a 35 millimeter cassette in plus one of their spools, and you would have to transfer the film from a 35 millimeter cassette into the Bolta cassette before you could shoot the film in it. But that's another kind of quirky. I'm sure that was a commercial success. <laughs> you, you know, it, it sounds like it shouldn't be, but the fact that they made so many of them, I mean, somebody was buying them. I'm not sure who exactly. And then there was a whole... Uh, subculture of Japanese Bolta cameras that use that same film. I don't know if they necessarily did um, square film. I, I did a review of one a long time ago called the Iko Sha Start that uses that same kind of film too. So it's kind of weird how sometimes these oddball cameras come out of nowhere and somebody takes off with them. Does anybody know anything about the the Altex one or two cameras? I think they were square format as well, but I've never I've never seen one before. It might be. I use. I have a four. Yeah, I use the lenses uh, on mirrorless. Cameras. Yeah, the lenses are cool. The four. Nice the the later ones were interchangeable. The one miles is. I don't think were. Yeah, yeah I think they were. were I think they were like uh, snapshot cameras with like two focus zones, and I think they were square format. Yeah, the later Altixes are actually pretty neat little cameras. You know, East German. You know, almost every one of them has a, a Carl Zeiss lens on it. You know, Zeiss Jena, uh lens. Nice little cameras, you know. Probably the worst thing about them is, is no matter how how much you try, they just had those like little rice, a piece of rice sized viewfinder, mm -hmm. uh, not for people with glasses. I'm I'm looking around the room here, and uh, 
almost every one of us is wearing got, got glasses except Dominic and Warner. So, well, the, the <laughs> younger, <laughs> uh, all, all the, uh, shall we say, older people. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know the Altixes are nice, you know, and and there's ice, there's ice glass, so you can get them. But it it's a dead end mount though that was only used on that one camera. I'm sorry, I was going to say we haven't heard from George and what you're shooting with, George. Yeah, George. Yeah, I'm just taking my mute off. Um, well, I mainly just shoot with standard. I, my, my main camera is a OM10, which I've had for, for let me see, 30, 38 years. And still no, pro- wow. no problems with film advance? Never been CLA'd. Well, probably if you keep using it, that, that's always what kills so many cameras is when they stop getting used. Yes. You know, the, the cameras that show a lot of wear, a lot of brassing that have been used regularly usually hold up well. The, yeah. the, the OM10s have um, plastic in the gearing, and if you use them too hard, you can wear the plastic out um, if you're not careful. Yeah, the, the only issue I've had with it is sometimes the um, wind-on knob jams. <laughs> But a quick <laughs> smack to the bottom normally resets it, and uh, it's, it, it works again for a few weeks. Is that the technical solution, is it, George? Oh, uh, yeah. Or, or, always give it a smack to the bottom. That's always the technique. I call that percussive maintenance. <laughs> they, they, get, um, they get out of sync on them in the gears like some, like a lot of Olympus uh, single-digit bodies do sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I got it as a 18th birthday present, and I've shot with it forever. It shot everything. It shot uh air wedding air kids everything a lot you know. of the om10s of the world have been um used as parts bodies to take the prisms out and replace om1 om1s that have had uh, foam degradation and uh desilvered the prisms inside om1s because it's the exact same pin of prism in a 10 and a one mm. oh wow so you can just take the the top plate off and swap out the prism yeah you just pull the prism out and doesn't the um early om1s had foam that is uh, gone, gone bad, yeah. and they um, they eat the silvering off the top of the prisms, and the only way to do yeah. it is do a uh, a prism transplant from an OM10. What was Olympus's thought process by putting the foam in on top of the prism in the OM1s? Like it didn't really serve that much of a purpose, other than they stopped on the OM1ns, so it's only on the uh, only on yeah. the early cameras, and it's just the thing to do at the time, I guess. Well, to be fair, a lot of companies use foam. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you if you think of a pentaprism, it's just a huge piece of glass that you're sticking on top of a camera. So you don't want to put a metal strap. There's no way to screw down a piece of glass. So you somehow have to get this piece of glass inside of a camera and not have it wiggle around. So they would kind of form the top of the, 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 the top cover over it. And so that it wouldn't rattle, they would just kind of take up the space with, you know, foam. Yep. Yeah, and you didn't think about 30 years in the future either. You, you know, just wanted it to work no, better right. there. No. What did the, the later OEMs use? Felt, I think. Uh, rather than foam. Yeah, it's exciting when you get an old like rangefinder, sixty two, nineteen sixty three. Uh, from my unscientific research, seems to be about when the foam light seals started getting put, you know, in, in the back of the film compartments on the hinges and in the channels, you know. Uh, and you get a camera from that era, seventies, even the eighties. You know, you you really do need to replace. Is it like a new special um, material as well at that time? Like, ooh, look at this foam. Yeah. Yeah, foam, 
it's an oil-based, you know, poly, whatever. I don't know how it's made, but, you know, that technology either didn't exist or it wasn't economically feasible. So you get a rangefinder from, you know, 59, you know, even 1960, a lot of them use yarn yeah. uh, or, or some kind of felt. I mean, the Soviets actually were slow in adopting foam. You, know, you can get Zenits from the early 80s that usually still have yarn light seals in them, but everybody else had switched. I have RB backs that I've, um, for, that I've changed the seals in, and you'll find that some of the, R, the old Graflex or RB backs will have foam on part of the seals and yarn on other parts of the seals in the same back. Yeah. Yeah, they, they actually moved to the to the seal less, for lack of another word, yeah. uh, version yeah. of those backs afterwards, where it was all done by via grooves rather than any any exactly. sort of material. Yeah, the Mamiya backs are better. Better. Yeah. At that. Most of the Graflex backs are kind of gummy inside. They're not hard to clean. It's just a pain in the ass. When I opened some cameras, I came across that they used cork to secure to the prism. Oh, cord. Cork. cork. Yeah cork oh wow yeah i've seen that that's uh uh it doesn't the, the material they use it doesn't degrade very well i mean it's so it's, yeah it doesn't doesn't flake off and create problems in the glass george don't don't put a winder on that om10 i used to have one back in the day i used to shoot sports with it um yeah. Today it'll the, the plastic. No, oh, yeah, I've I, I've still got the winder upstairs, but um, I don't use it. I don't use it at all now, yeah. um, especially now that I get this issue with, like I say, it jamming every now and again. It probably does need to go in for a CLA. It's just um, it's not it's not worth it to CLA them. It's too expensive. You can just yeah. buy, buy another yeah. one. They're they're not worth CLA. Yeah, it sounds like this one might be an old friend of the family, but I agree. You exactly. can pick up a, a good working condition OM10 for. Yeah, 50 pounds. Yeah, I mean, John Hermanson, probably the go-to guy in the U.S. for Olympus says, you know, I don't even do Tim's anymore. He says, it's not worth my time. Yeah. Is the OM10 the one where you have to buy an accessory and you plug it into the front? Yeah, Yeah, it's the manual manual adapter because it's not got an actual manual shooting. It's just uh, AP. Yeah, all the the double-digit OMs are all amateur and the single-digit are all semi I would, I would call them semi-professional because they're not up to the canon f1 nikon ff2 standards but they were i mean they're good cameras but they do break if you're not careful uh so it'd be like comparable like to the minolta maybe like the 570 the x570 or no it's, it's more like an xg1 you know where okay it'd be, right. it'd be shutter priority only or aperture okay. priority only and, and this the shutter the shutters are well rated but they're, they're not up to you know f2 standards and much as they wanted much as they wanted to think they were they actually sold an om10 fc in the u.s it was called a uh, a full control om10 full control did they really it actually came with the uh the only difference was it came with the manual adapter and it had a little decal of an american flag on it oh, oh it wasn't a different camera it was just no, the same camera they just called it it was badged om10 fc Got it. But it actually had that on it, but it just came with a manual adapter. That was the only difference. Ponder and Best probably commissioned that. <laughs> yeah, probably. The OM30 in America was sold as the OMG, yeah. which OMG. I always thought was really funny. Yeah. OMG? Uh, the OMG, the OM30. Is the well, OMG. there was OMG, OMF, OMPC. 20, uh, 30, and 40 in an F. Yep. They should have combined two of those together and had the OMFG. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, the F, the F had the um, that autofocus thirty to thirty five to seventy uh, bundled with it. Right. Did it also have focus confirmation? 
It did in five yeah. focus. So yeah, I mean, it was it was a really because I, I don't think it had a split image. I think it was more of an aerial type. Uh, mm, don't remember that Fresnel. So, but it did have a really nice focus confirmation uh, system on it. Yeah, they used that you know that lens with the motor uh, that was grafted yeah. onto it during yeah. the, you know like the early early AF lenses were, and it's you know it's eighties technology. I, I want to ask about a, a British camera to see if anybody besides me has shot one of these. Uh, has anybody ever shot a Perma Special? Uh, yeah, I have. Do you one. have one, Peggy? Uh, oh no, which one do I have? Um, I have a Perma, uh, and I think it's the special I'm looking for. Um, or it's like oh, that's that triangle shaped one, right? Yeah, I thought that looked super cool. Yeah, it's got a, like a trapezoidal body. It's the one with the. Uh, uh, gravity. Yeah, the gravity shot. Yeah, yep. so yeah, I've, I've got one. Yeah, yeah, because I when it was like f uh, sorry, it was like one four hundredth, and I thought this is like a really old camera, can't possibly be one four hundredth, but yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah, uh, because they're like uh, from the nineteen fifties or something, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but the oh, it's that shoots the square um, yep. picture. It's well. on one twenty seven uh, film. One two seven. Yeah. So actually, I went through the internet trying to get all the different. Um, filters for it as well so I ended up with quite a good um, setup with that so it comes with uh, yeah the person who had it before me had a glasses case and he put cork in it and he's put all the different filters in uh, so yeah I've got what do you do how do you do film that. for it these yeah. days I mean you, can you even buy one two seven uh, I use the um, fck 127 uh, it cuts down uh, 120 film to 127 oh. really easily so you don't really even need a dart bag for it. I found that Ilford, not Ilford, um, Fomapan scratch inside seems really thin, but all other films just cut straight down to one two. So what do you do? Do you go in and unspool the one the one twenty and then stick it in this little thing to slit it? Um, no, you don't even have to unspool it. You basically, uh, I mean, I could demonstrate it on here, but okay. we have to talk about it. Um, you put it in uh, one. It's like yeah. a machine like this. And you put it in one side and you pull it through like yep. a little slot. And then there's a yep. like razor blade in there. And as you pull it through, uh, it will cut it into two sections. Actually, the top section will be uh, 110, uh, 110 size, like yeah. 15 millimeter. And then you've got uh, the 127 at the bottom. Uh, and then you put it onto another 120 thread with kind of a divider um, plastic piece. And then when you put it inside the machine, and oh, so it, it preserves the and then when it preserves the, the backing end, paper and the tape yeah, and everything. Yeah, everything everything's on it, uh, and uh, you have to make sure you you have to you have to make sure you put the one twenty film in the right orientation because it'll work both ways. But if you do it the right way, the the exposure number on the paper will still will line up too. Really? Because I found it. That I found oh, it, it doesn't. doesn't but okay. I'll try that. No, because with what I've done on some cameras is I've. I've because I tried it with the numbers and it didn't work out. Uh, but it could be that it I didn't, didn't okay. do it the right way. Yeah. Um, but I've done it with, say, with an old vest pocket, um, and I just worked out how many turns to give it, which I think was about four. You gave it four turns, uh, and then when I was looking at that, the numbers didn't line up. Uh, but then I'm not too careful. It's probably yeah. something similar. By yeah, camera, by camera hack from Italy. Very similar to three D three D printed that that cuts yeah, thirty five yeah. millimeter down to um, minox. Oh, okay. I think it's the same, yeah, same concept. Yeah. The guy yeah, was really nice uh, yeah. that I bought this. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. He sent me one and it disappeared. 
and then so he just sent me another one, you know, free, which was cost him like $30, $40. And I was like, well, you know, I said, you don't have to do that. He's like, don't worry about it. It's like, uh, you know, it's fine. Uh, so the cutoff you get will fit inside a, a 110 camera. Uh, and that's one of the things I've been keeping it and put it in a like a light type box every time I cut one off just to see if I can re-spool into a one one cassette, but I haven't actually one got time. around to that yet. But the camera hack guy said he's working on a, a refillable um, cartridge for one one I, I have, a, um, he sent me this little thing right here that, that will that will slit 35 millimeter into one, um, 16 yeah, as well. Uh, you, yeah. you pull the, the cutting block out and replace the Minox with one that'll do it. instead of instead of uh, uh, eight millimeters, it does 16. So Peggy or Theo, you guys both both have a uh, PERMA. Have you, have you shot it? Uh, yeah, a few times. That's actually really clear. Yeah. Uh, you think there's going to be a lot of um, camera shakes because there's a massive thud, but then you realize that the thud happens At when the, the shutter's gone. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not a problem. Let, let me just play that for Peggy, just so people can hear it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and your finger will get in your the finger, way. Your finger, you well. got to be really careful. When that, yeah. Uh oh, Theo broke his. Oh, I think I just broke mine. Mine's in the bottom of the box. I can't get it. Yeah, I, and I'm not at home. But that's a camera that is, you know, there are certain cameras you oh, have high go. expectations for and don't, yeah. yeah. Do it again. Oh, it's loud. It's, it's way louder in person. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> it's it's definitely not elegant, but you know it's Bakelite. It uses a gravity shutter with only three speeds, and it's a square format, so it doesn't matter whether you hold the camera either you know in, in any direction, and that's how you change the speed. So when you hold the camera one way, it's at the slow speed. Oh. You hold the camera in the middle, it's at a middle speed, and you hold the camera the other way, and it goes at the one four hundred. That she's all works by about. gravity. Yeah, it all works by gravity. It yeah. works it's by gravity. Superb. There's a there's a basically there's a lead weight or a big heavy metal weight on one of the curtains. It's a curved metal curtain, and one of them has this huge weight hanging from it. And when you when you hold the camera in a way where the weight is at the top, and you fire it, the the force of the shutter is with the metal, so it goes super fast. But when you turn it 180 degrees, now the weight's at the bottom. So when you fire the shutter, it has to pull up on this weight. And the weight, the drag of the weight slows it down so much that you get a much slower speed. That is that is ridiculously ingenious uh, for, yeah. for a cheap camera. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to shooting mine, but the, what's actually missing on mine is the the actual red covering on the the red windows of the back. Oh, so I need to find yeah, something. When they, when they sold it, new they actually gave you a red window for color film oh yeah i've got the green and a window, green window right. for black and white film so the the those windows are changeable and that's probably why yours are missing someone took it out and never put it so back in was it ortho film because it was green yeah well that's because in the era they they you know people might mostly shot ortho film but if you know the rare person that wanted to shoot color back then you'd have to take the green window out and replace it does, with a red does one. 127 have numbers on the back of it it, yes, does, it does. Yes. Do they do? If you slit the one twenty, can you use the numbers? It, you have to do it a right way. And like Peggy was saying, she wasn't able to get it to work correctly. But there, there is a way to do it where you cut one twenty seven where the numbers will line up. That's something I'm going to try now. Probably take it out and try and get it. Another to work. alternative for one twenty seven that Paul just provided me with. It, it, they're hard to find, but you, they do show up on eBay sometimes. You can find bulk forty six millimeter film. Fuji made it, Kodak had it in Portra. There's actually two rolls of it up there right now, but it's 46 millimeter bulk film 
And you do need to have some 127 spools and the original backing paper. So if you have a supply, I have a ton of them. So if anybody yeah. could, could benefit from some empty spools of 127, but you literally just take the film into a dark room. I just use my basement bathroom because there's no windows. I turn off the light. Uh, you want about a two foot strip, which ironically is the exact distance between the handles on the sink vanity. So I just open up this 46 millimeter. 100 foot roll. I just feel out a two foot length, cut it with my scissors. And then I take my um, 127. I use real 127 backing paper and just a small piece of tape. And you just tape it emulsion side out to the backing paper. And then you just wind it back on the spool and boom, you have color Very cool. 127. And the the film that Paul was able to get me expired in 2005. Well, that's good. So, that's you know, good. it's it's 15 years old, but I, I shot it. I gave it an extra stop of exposure and the pictures came out actually really nice. So there's, you know, in the river pan makes film. Uh, I don't know if, if you can get that, that fresh anymore. Film though. Too. They, they make you, you a little bit around, not much. Frugal photographer is another place in the U S that sells 127. Uh, the one, you know, you can try looking on eBay and get lucky and find some V pan, you know, Kodak Ferrochrome. Um, in 127 that usually holds up really well. So it, it sucks because there's a lot of really cool 127 cameras like the, the Perma Special. Um, I'm working on a yeah. review for the... I haven't got the Perma Special. I really want yeah, that one. because You got have the speed? Filters for it. Yeah. So I'll probably get that. Yeah, day. there was a Perma Speed, a Perma Special, and then there was a third one. I can't remember what it was yeah, called. I don't know. But I've also got the Yashica 44. Yep. So I thought that the camera hack cutter would be really useful because the Yeshka 44 doesn't need the um, the numbers right? Uh, because it's just the straight right. wind on. So I didn't, that's why I haven't really thought about them. Yeah. Yeah. If you use the Yashica 44, I assume the baby roll is probably the same way. I've never had one of those, yeah. but you don't even need to worry about the numbers and the backing paper for those. There's an Alfred HP 400 ISO film that's either re-rolled by Alfred or by someone else, which is available commercially, but not in great stock. Have you used that, Peggy? No, I tend to, I try to do everything on the cheap. So, um, like, I was just looking at the price of the bulk roll 46, and it's like £130 plus £28 for uh, delivery. Then you've got tax on top of that. So I'm going to stick to cutting uh, the rolls. But if I don't cut it, I don't use it. I'm not trying to twist your arm, but you're going to get 50 rolls out of that, (laughs) though. So do do like I do. That much in up front is no. I agree. I understand, but you know, a, a yeah. potential offset for that is you, you make fifty, keep twenty five <laughs> for yourself, and then sell. That's sell true. them at ten ten pounds a pop, and you'll make your money back quick. But it, but then I could uh, get Ilford and uh, sell that at fifteen or something <laughs> if I roll it onto one. Yeah, this was so, my this this is uh, a product of one of your podcasts. Yes, there's Robert Shane um, Book's book. Exactly, uh, my daughter gave it to me. For for Christmas, all right. For Christmas, and she actually, you know, got it from, of course, from him, and he, he got here in a day when she ordered it. It, it was wow. Uh, but if anybody hasn't seen this, I mean, this is a four hundred and seventy-five odd page book on um, on the making of Kodak film. It's uh, is chock full of very, very yeah. nerdy, interesting stuff. Yeah, in the short time we've been doing this podcast, we've been really fortunate to have some awesome discussions. And Robert Shanebrook was on episode eight. 
um, which I think is still one of our best episodes. You know, just the amount of information he had was was really cool. He presented it in a, a easy to listen to way. You know, I think I think right now hearing boy a podcast about a guy talking about how film is made doesn't sound interesting, but when you listen to it, you know, he explains why infrared film probably will never get made again. He explains why Kodachrome will never be made again. You know, and it's just the amount of information that he shared and, and plus in that book is just really really cool. I mean, he he handled a camera that actually got left on the moon. How much? What interesting could you get? Yeah. yeah, he made a stereo camera that's on the moon right now. Yeah, every, multiple every, versions. Every of single, um, all what six? How many missions were there? 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17. So six missions. They're all still there. Yeah. yeah. So does anybody else have any Christmas or, or recent pickups they want to talk about? I've been really lucky that I've made a new friend who I've talked about, uh, and I sent him a camera, and he sent it back all clear out. CLA and recovered so I'm really happy with that actually so I call it a Christmas present uh, because it came back around Christmas so that's my my one for now is that the 19 yeah it is uh it is I don't know actually let's have a look uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it is. It's the 19. I am not at home right now, and this is the only camera I have with yeah. me is a Canon at 19. It's 1.9, but it doesn't say Same 19. camera. M- Mike, is that, yeah. the, is that the meter yeah. you got by mistake? This is the Dumo. I did a review of this um, recently on my Any site. Good? Read the review. <laughs> okay. Circling back to Topcons, I recently, just before Christmas, picked up a, top, a black Topcon RE2 off a relatively local seller in eastern Ontario and I as people know I'm primarily a Nikon, Canon FD, Olympus OM, Minolta and an occasional Pentax shooter. My dad had a contact uh, a Topcon RE2 which my brother got in the estate so of course I just purely picked it up for sheer nostalgia reasons and it had came up the 58 1.8 lens and I'm going to try it out when I get home because I'm currently Harrison Dog sitting at my brother's place in Toronto's East End, and he has a camera museum in the basement. That's cool. Peggy, you said you were gifted that camera. Was that from the guy who fixes your cameras? or? Yeah, yeah. So I sent it to him along with uh, a couple of other cameras. So I've been sending him my broken cameras because uh, he really enjoys fixing them. So what I found, he, brought, he bought one of my cameras on eBay for 99p. And then wrote me a message saying that he'd fixed it. And after I stopped grumbling a bit, um, I asked him how he did it and told him about my website. And so he sent me a message, which is what I hoped he would do, because you can't really have a conversation on eBay. Um, And then I told him I'd got a few more broken ones if he wanted them. Um, And he's accepted them and fixed them all. Um, And it's just something he seems to like doing. So you were talking about an own one before. I just sent him an own one that was... I thought was fixable and he's um, changing the pentaprism and fixing the other bits. And he said, he's going to send it back to me, which I wasn't expecting. Um, So I'm now sending him an OM10 that is, it's okay. It works. The internal meter doesn't work. It flickers, but everything else on it works fine. Um, And it has the manual adapter on it. So I'm sure he'll have a look at that as well. It's nice. It's like a, like a rotabout. It's a symbiosis. Can I ask you a question, Peggy? Are you somewhere south of Leeds? Uh, I'm actually, I'm thinking about if I'm south or not. I'm very close to Leeds. You can see now I'm having a bit of whiskey and my, I'm getting tired. And my <laughs> coming The out reason I asked you, my favorite camera <laughs> store in the entire yeah. world was West in Harrogate. Oh, okay, yeah. 
Harrogate is posh. No, no. Well, it is Yorkshire, but I agree about it being posh. But (laughs) it was across the diagonally across the street from Betty's Tea Room, and it was an old building with wooden floors and a a, a twenty foot ceiling. And no, I'd heard about it. I haven't been there yet. Um, I've only been. They're long gone. They it's a they're not there anymore. Yeah, it was a great camera. Malcolm, anything anything new recently? Uh, I, I managed to get there. I, I used to live in a city called Peterborough, and um, there was a street photographer there, amateur, would go around just snapping shots. And he's come around to photography again, and he's posted these photos online. And he's he's tried to get the people to come back and do reunion shots. So 40 years later, you get people who were in pushchairs, who are now yeah. 40 years old, and people just walking down the street shopping. <sighs> And um, I, I got his first one because the, the connection was, like I said, I went to school in Peterborough. And, um, but yeah, his guy called Chris, Chris Porsche, P-O-R-S-Z, you can buy the book off his website. So I got the reunions. I already had reunions one. I've got reunions two for Christmas. But it was, I just think it's, it's one of those brilliant things of, you know, it, there's this 40-year gap between all the photos and, and just seeing people change and the stories behind yeah. the photos and yeah that to me is the essence of what photography is 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 the memories that people have and the way it shows the change in, i mean i i went to school there i i got into photography there and i of course i was only 13 14 at the time but you you just i just think oh if only i could go back and take photos and and then take them again 40 years later just brilliant idea so yeah i'd, I'd love to see that book it's on my uh, on it's, my wish list I got, uh, is it Tisha Merton, uh, her book, um, Elswick right. Kids, uh, which was taken uh, yeah. in like the 80s. In, this, uh, it's only £23, so it's straight off his website. That's... I think I'll get it, yeah. I have to wait until I get back to work. Oh, I, right. I just, I just love that type of photography, <laughs> you know. Yeah, me too. All right, George is holding up an Olympus 124G. Yeshika. Or sorry, yes. <laughs> yeah, oh. I just picked this up uh, for Christmas. Uh, Those are really nice. Yeah, I got it from West Yorkshire Cameras. So, yeah, I've been after one for a while, and uh, I finally saw one, and I convinced my wife that that's what I wanted for Christmas. So she was kind enough to get it for me. And the battery compartment's clean? The meter works? Yeah, everything works fine. Everything works fine. I've got a roll of film that I put through it. I've just got to get around to developing in the next couple of days. West Yorkshire Cameras are very good. I go in there quite a lot because they're in Leeds. Um, uh, and I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if it didn't work because they really do take care. Of yeah, I bought stuff. quite a few cameras from them, and I know Adam, so yeah, yeah, so yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty good. I mean, we've got one down here in London called Mr. Cad, but they, um, I don't always trust them, I've got to be honest. They've been around forever, though, haven't they? Mr. Mr. Cad has been, been the, yeah, they've been around since the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we lost Skip. Uh, he had a sign off. Um, I, I, I get to that point in the show where we want to start winding down. Um, I really think it's awesome that you guys were able to join us. Uh, some people that we wouldn't normally get to see because of the time zone differences. Uh, we do definitely want to do these European episodes from time to time. It's not going to be uh, obviously every time. You know, We'll go back with episode 17 to our normal time in two weeks. Uh, so look for an announcement 
coming. We'll record on January 10th. But I want to say thank you to everybody who joined us. Um, we were really hoping to get Stephen Dowling on, but something came up with him. Uh, Anthony, you know, had an unexpected, you know, thing come up too, which happens, you know, so we missed them this week. But um, as you guys all see, the topics we cover are based entirely on who joins, whether we talk about Nikon over and over again or, or, or Perma specials or, or whatnot is entirely on you guys. But I wanted to give everybody one last chance to uh, ask a question or, or share something maybe that they've wanted to talk about uh, before we sign off. Yeah, um, am I the first woman you've had? On? Second. We had Jess Hobbs um, very okay. early on, though. Yeah. And we had Liz and, Potter and as well. Up. We had Liz Potter as well. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. I can't oh, keep track. Okay. Yes, so so third. But um, you're the only one that I knew ahead of time. So <laughs> <laughs> Peggy, <laughs> Theo, Alan, and I, and, and a couple other um, bloggers, we have a private chat. We've had been going on now for going on five years, maybe longer than that. Um, and, and we try to help each other out, uh, with, with inspiration on, you know, Jim Gray was, was getting a little down on his site recently. So we've been trying to help him out with some suggestions. Uh, Theo's site crashed one point and he couldn't even access it. So, you know, we offered him some tech support with that too. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, it's really helpful to have a group of people who do kind of the same thing to sort of help keep you going and offer suggestions and inspire people. Uh, and, and that's what I think is super great about this community, whether you're talking about podcasters, whether you're talking about bloggers, or if you just like using these cameras, there's always somebody out there that wants to help. Um, and I, I think that you guys are all part of that too. So that's why we do this. And I hope to keep doing it for as long as people want to keep talking to us about stuff. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt that Bill's on there and I like Nikon and or Nikon, the way I say it, and he does too. So <laughs> we have long, long well, discussions. I, there. I, it's funny because I, it's like, yeah, I'm a, Nikon, I'm a Nikon fanboy who shoots a lot of Canon FD and an Olympus OM. So I got multiple flavors, although right now with the weather being what it is, I just reach for my FM and just go at it because vertical copal shutters laugh at the cold. <laughs> Considering in some parts of my country, it's down to minus 37 Celsius. Oh, crap. Yeah, I'm in northern Michigan right now. At, at that point, it doesn't matter what you're measuring in. It's cold. Yeah. <laughs> I, was say, I have no idea about that. <laughs> I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> oh, that'll be a crude wake up, Theo. <laughs> yeah, see, it's summer. It's summer down for Theo. It is. It is. We it's, it's, it's his version of July. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thanks again. Um, if you guys have any websites or any pictures you want to send us, the things that you shared, Dominic, if you could shoot us an image of that robot with that cool viewfinder, we'll include it in the show notes so people can see it. Theo, maybe you could uh, share uh, Warner's Topcon that he sold you. I will. I definitely um, will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, everybody. You guys have a, a great rest of your day. Uh, some of you are going to bed pretty soon. Some of you are just starting your day. Uh, this will be our last show of the year, so Happy New Year's to everybody, and uh, hopefully 2022 is good to all of us. Happy, Happy New, New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Leave when yeah, you guys going. have to go now. You guys go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Just going to talk about some, when we're not there. Yeah, it gives Mike and I yeah. a chance to talk about you now. <laughs> okay. <laughs>